For more than three decades, the United Nations system has considered the rights of Indigenous peoples as human rights. We rarely do that here in Canada. That's Romeo Saganash. He's a Cree lawyer, politician, and a leading champion of efforts to get Canada to align its laws with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He's our guest today on our Akamemok podcast. Tanse, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamema Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And right now, one of the biggest issues is getting Bill C-15 the Act Respecting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples passed into Canadian law. This is the second attempt to recognize that First Nations rights are human rights by having the United Nations Declaration enshrined into law. The first was the Private Members Bill, Bill C-262. When it was introduced into Parliament in 2016 by former NDP Member of Parliament, Romeo Saganash, he called it a leap forward for Indigenous rights, title, and reconciliation. Sadly, the bill died after a filibuster by Conservative senators. Saganash was undaunted. At the time, he said, Let us rise again with more energy. Bill C-15 is answering that call and is currently working its way through Parliament. We're joined now by Romeo Saganash, former Member of Parliament for Abitibi Bay James, Nunavik, EU, and a proud member of the Waswanapi Cree First Nation. So welcome to the Akamema podcast, Romeo. Thank you so much, my friend. It's good to hear uh, the Cree spoken. And so now, you spent so much time when Bill C-262 was before Parliament educating members of Parliament about the human rights of Indigenous peoples and Canada's international obligation. What are some of the memories that stand out in your mind from that experience and why did you do all that hard work in the beginning? I think it was important for not only parliamentarians, it's part of their duty to understand and uh, embrace these these issues um, in international human rights law. It's part of their duties. They've, they've sworn to respect all of the constitutional obligations and international obligations that we have. That's one thing. The other part was, of course, educating Canadians um, about uh, the UN Declaration and the human rights of Indigenous peoples. For more than three decades, the United Nations system has considered the rights of Indigenous peoples as human rights. We rarely do, do that here in Canada. They're always considered political rights or civil rights, but uh, rarely human rights. So it was important for me to um, make that understood by by non-Indigenous Canadians as well. So I traveled one summer uh, to promote (laughs) Bill C-262 across the country from from out east uh, in New Brunswick, um, Nova Scotia, all the way to, to Victoria, B.C., 
so eight weeks in the car, organizing town hall meetings, both with Indigenous and non-Indigenous audiences, so that I, I can explain, explain not only Bill C-262 and what it will do, but also the United Nations Declaration and, and our human rights, international human rights obligations here in Canada. Uh, the Supreme Court rarely considers our rights as human rights as well. Uh, I think they came close in the Chilcotin uh, case in t- 2014. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court uh, mentioned that the that the charter rights in Part 1 of our Constitution and Section 35 rights in Part 2 of our Constitution are sister provisions that serve to limit the powers of governments, both provincial and federal. I'm almost quoting by heart the paragraph in Chilcotin. So I think we're getting close to that. And uh, I think that's that's the way forward. I know at that time, you went right across Canada and there was a lot of support for Bill C-262 and tribal councils, individual First Nations chiefs and councils, different regional First Nations organizations. Um, did a lot of, you did a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, even in the House of Commons, when Bill C-262 was introduced, there was unanimous support in the House of Commons. And uh, unfortunately, when it went into the Senate, your private members bill, Again, we know due to the political wrangling from the conservative senators, delayed it and it didn't pass. And uh, so I just wanted to lift you up and acknowledge for all your work on 262 because there was a lot of support for that. And uh, acknowledge your efforts there, no question. It wasn't unanimous uh, support for Bill Bill C-262. The conservative uh, party voted against and they will do so again with uh, C-15. But uh, I think... um, what was important in all of this is to is to get the support of uh, uh, people on the ground, not only Indigenous, because uh, we're all in this together, apparently. So uh, Canadians also need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and, and the human rights of uh, the first peoples of this country. Uh, mm-hmm. We also need to understand that. So that's why that effort... Uh, we calculated uh, at the end of the day, after all was said and done, that uh, the Indigenous organizations that signed on and communities that signed on to, to Bill C-262 represented about a million uh, Indigenous individuals in the country. So that's important. Mm-hmm. Now, I know when we brought it up to our AFN, our 71st Nations Chiefs and Assembly, they passed a resolution uh, directing us at the AFN and me as national chief to, to work with this liberal government to get a bill that's in place that's as strong as 262 and are improved upon it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's where Bill C- C-15 came from. Mm-hmm. Now, based on what you went through with your private members' bill, what do you think? Are you hopeful that we'll get Bill C-15 passed in time before the end of June? Like, do we have enough time? What are your thoughts on that now going forward? If there was a spring election, federal election, I don't think we, we would have time. That's that's pretty uh, certain for me. Um, I've said it before publicly, and I'll say it again. I'm afraid that uh, that the Liberal government has pulled another Kelowna Accord on us with this late-in-the-day introduction of Bill C-15. Um, and that would be unfortunate because uh, the implementation of the UN Declaration should have started 13 years ago in my view, when the UN General Assembly adopted the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That did not happen. We don't have to wait for a legislation to implement the rights that are enshrined in the UN Declaration. They should have started 13 years ago. 
So it's uh, late in the day, in my view. Um, if we get to a, a fall election, and that's my hope here, speaking of hope, there is a chance that uh, this bill will go through. We've heard the discussion yesterday, the first hour debate yesterday in the House of Commons on Bill C-15, and mm -hmm. we sort of already have an indication of where the parties stand. Uh, we only heard the Liberal government uh, and the official opposition speak to it. The Bloc, the NDP, and the other parties will have their opportunity to speak to it as well, hopefully in the, in the near future. But uh, I think it's important to, to monitor that discussion in the House of Commons in order to prepare for uh, the eventual committees that will come. Uh, first, the House of Commons Committee mm -hmm. sent to the Indigenous and Northern Affairs uh, Committee. And then uh, once it gets to the Senate after third reading vote in favor, there will be a committee in the Senate as well. So that's that's the process, and that those are the stages that uh, we need to mon monitor very carefully. But my hope is that uh, this is an opportunity of a lifetime to add another legal framework to uh, the different legal frameworks that we have at our disposal. Treaties in this country is a distinct legal framework. The Constitution is a distinct legal framework. Uh, international law is a distinct legal framework. Our legal systems and indigenous law is a distinct legal framework that we have at our disposal. So they're all distinct, but interrelated in a way and mutually reinforcing. And it's in that sense that this will add to our toolbox in the defense and promotion of our rights and interests in this country. No, that's a good statement. It's another tool in our toolbox. You know, as we move towards recognition of uh, Aboriginal rights and title, as we keep working towards uh, treaty implementation according to spirit and intent, you know, in Section 35, we've always argued is a full box of rights, which includes the inherent right to self-determination or self-government. And this yeah. is just another, uh, I always say, another arrow in our quiver. <laughs> to, to, to yeah. indigenize it up. One of the points that I noticed yesterday, listening to the Conservative Party representative speaking to, to Bill C-15, is that the insistence on clarity and certainty in their discussion on Bill C-15. I'm surprised by that because uh, if there is one thing that wasn't clear when Parliament adopted the 1982 Constitution, it's the whole concept of Aboriginal rights, what is contained in, in that concept of Aboriginal rights. That wasn't very clear at that time. It mm -hmm. took many court decisions to arrive at our understanding of uh, Section 35 of the Constitution of 1982 today. But with the UN Declaration, we have 46 articles that define these economic, political, social, cultural, environmental, and spiritual rights of Indigenous peoples. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of clarity uh, to see one declaration, and I think we should move forward from there. Now, my next thought and question, Romy, would be, how would the implementation legislation, like, like Bill C-15, make a difference to the challenges that our people face every day in areas such as health services and language and culture, access to justice and, you know, better education services for our people. So how would this help our people on the ground, if you will? Even for the UN General Assembly adopted the UN Declaration in September 2007, uh, the UN Declaration was referred to by tribunals and courts in order to interpret domestic law and inherent Aboriginal rights in this country. And that's going to continue. I'll give you an example. In 2002, we negotiated 
an agreement with the, the Quebec government. And one of the important provisions that we used in that negotiation in 2002 was Article 25 of the UN Declaration. And that spiritual relationship that needs to be recognized and maintained and strengthened between indigenous peoples and their lands, territories, and resources. So we use that in our negotiations to defend a sacred hill that we find in northern Quebec, in the James Bay Territory, Mushkuji, the Bear Hill. Mushkuji was a safe, is a sacred place today for the Cree because in times of starvation, that was the only place that my people found food and fish. So it has a really significant spiritual value for the Cree nation and the Cree people in northern Quebec. So we use that article to save Mushkuji in those negotiations. Mm. And Mushkuji is now protected from forestry operations today because of that. So there are many ways that you can use uh, the UN Declaration. There's an option in Bill C-15, if you read the preamble carefully, uh, for implementation of treaties, the possibility of clear implementation of treaties. These are human rights and are said to be inherent. I don't think... Uh, <laughs> I need to be consulted as an individual about my my human rights. They're inherent. They belong to me. I possess them. So that's that's where I take it from. I think this enabling legislation in Bill Bill C-15 will allow us not to debate anymore because these rights are always up for debate in Canadian society, also in the House of Commons. I was there for eight years, and I know this. Our human rights are always up for debate. There will be no question with this enabling legislation anymore that we have a right to clean drink, drinking water, that we have a right to adequate housing for our people, you know, both in our communities and in urban settings. Uh, so those kind of things will sort of uh, uh, become clear for, for many people. And that, that's what I mean by this is just another legal framework that we can use to advance uh, our fight for the recognition and respect for our rights. So now Bill C-15 is introduced into the uh, the House of Commons first reading and then second reading. So it's going down its uh, its legislative process, and there's always uh, opportunity for amendments to Bill C-15 to strengthen it, make it stronger. And I'm sure as well, when it gets into the Senate, there'll be thoughts and ideas to make it stronger and recommendations there. But hopefully, not too much so it doesn't get a, like become like a ping pong ball between the two houses because we we do want to get those two words royal assent, you yeah. know. But when you look at Bill C-15, is there anything in Bill C-15 that you'd like to see strengthened or focused on to make it stronger or clearer? There are a couple of things, and people have mentioned this, uh, uh, given our times and our, and our difficulties in the uh, health system and uh, with our police, I think uh, we should have known that racism exists uh, and is alive and well in this country. I find it unfortunate that uh, we talk about systemic discrimination, but we don't talk about systemic racism in this mm-hmm. country, given all of the um, um, white nationalism uh, that is uh, that is present both here and abroad. Um, I think it's important that we highlight uh, those kind of difficulties that Indigenous peoples have faced uh, throughout their lives. From the very beginning, I faced racism uh, in my life. Uh, uh, that's that's one change that needs to be put in place. A lot of people talked about the three years to develop the action plan. Mm-hmm. My personal view, uh, uh, given the diversity of indigenous nations in this country, uh, that seems reasonable 
for me, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, that people don't have to agree with me on that. But a lot of people have raised it. I think it's a valid point, given the fact that we've been discussing this uh, declaration for the last uh, three decades now. So I think uh, I think it's a reasonable request to uh, consider uh, strengthening that, that provision. Uh, the non-derogation clause is um, not clear to me. If you compare it to the non-derogation clause that I had in Bill C-262, I happen to think that my non-derogation clause, with all due respect to Perry, <laughs> I happen to think that mine was stronger. But it was stronger and clearer. Yeah, but on that specific point, if you read the French version of the non-derogation clause, it's much more clear in the French version than it is in English. So uh, there needs to be further analysis on that mm -hmm. as well. There are certain other provisions in the preamble, for instance, uh, which I find was some sort of like clum clumsy uh, drafting. <laughs> it, and it happens, even, mm -hmm. even the best lawyers and, and legal drafters in this country. So and there's a lot of things. I'm, I'm hoping that I'll, I, would be, I will be invited to the committee to testify Uh, that effect, as a matter of fact. There's some good points. So everything from the timeline, some people can say it's too long, three years. Some say are recommending a shorter timeline. Uh, being clear, the systemic racism, not only systemic discrimination. Um, looking, uh, tightening up the non-derogation clause. Uh, there's the other points about the um, a reference to doctrines of superiority without explicitly mentioning the doctrine of uh, discovery and the doctrine of terra nullius as illegal racist doctrine. So there's a lot of things that can happen in the, in the bill. So that's why we say to people, to our listeners, that it's embarking on uh, a journey within the House of Commons and the Senate. And there are, there are opportunities to make changes to strengthen it. So we're going to seize those. Go ahead. And to, and to that point, I think it's important to remember This is a parliamentary process to which anybody can participate. If mm -hmm. you have an opportunity to to appear in person as a witness, you still have that opportunity to send in a brief to the committee explaining your objections or desired amendments to, to the bill or improvements uh, and so on and so forth. So anybody, any individual in this country can write to the uh, clerk of the committee and to explain their, their positions. Yeah, that's a good point. So now, uh, again, we have so much diversity across this land in Canada. You know, there's diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, varying positions from different chiefs, you know, um, that, that some support the bill and some don't support the bill. Yeah. And uh, I've always said we have our, one of our most important rights is our right to self-determination. Uh, as First Nations people, you know, I say we're not stakeholders. We're, we're Indigenous peoples, First Nations peoples. And uh, we'll always have that inherent right. Uh, we always want to move beyond the Indian Act. Uh, we have a treaty relationship with the Crown that we've yet to see it honored and implemented according to the spirit and intent. And uh, there is a group of people out there that would say, well, you know, this, uh, this bill infringes, you know, on our, our treaty rights and our sovereignty jurisdiction. So what would you say to those people that say, hey, this is going to hurt us in some way? Well, um, first of all, I don't see any provisions either in the preamble or the operative articles to that effect. In fact, it's the opposite. It upholds, the non-derogation clause upholds what we have today and what we may negotiate in the future, similar to the provision that we find in the, the UN Declaration, Article 45. There's nothing in the Declaration that, that is to be construed either to diminish 
or extinguish the rights that we presently have or may acquire in the future, is the wording of Article 45. So that basically means the treaty rights that you have are not affected by this bill. Other inherent rights that you have under the Constitution of 1982 are not affected by this bill. Every time I hear abrogation, whatever the phrase in which it is inserted, it triggers me. That's why I use a different wording in Bill C-262. So we might consider changing the wording of that. Um, and on, the, on that point, I think it's time that we have a non-derogation uh, article in the Federal Interpretation Act that would apply to every federal legislation. So all pieces of legislation, federal legislation. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. That is, that is something that the Minister of Justice needs to consider. The other aspect of all of this, and, and this, this is something that uh, Bill C-15 will do, and just to go back briefly to the previous question, is that presently under the uh, Department of Justice Act, Articles 4.1, 4.2 of the Department of Justice Act, the Minister of Justice has an obligation to make sure that every legislation before it is introduced in the House has to make sure that the legislation is consistent with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm. We don't have the same thing for Aboriginal treaty rights. So if we have something in the Department of Justice Act to that effect, that, that would make a whole lot of difference. That would avoid us court cases uh, in the future. Because uh, uh, I know from experience that every time that, that there is legislation, I always raise the yellow flag to say, hey, this goes against treaty rights. This mm -hmm. goes against Aboriginal rights. This goes against Supreme Court case. Because that's my duty. That was my duty as a member of parliament. Uh, and as I mentioned um, at the National Forum on Bill C-15, uh, during my eight years, eight and a half years in parliament, I went through... 1,463 pieces of legislation. And it takes a lot more time for me because I always take uh, uh, the time to read both versions, the English and the French versions, to make sure that uh, uh, provisions are, are consistent with one another. I think it's important for people to read uh, the legislation carefully and, mm -hmm. to, and to understand the legislation for what it says, not the way they think it should be interpreted. So now, even with this this last point, this last discussion item about having a, a an Aboriginal rights lens and a treaty and inherent rights lens on all new federal pieces of legislation or even existing federal pieces of legislation, have that lens even before they're introduced. So that's something else, uh, uh, another piece of work to follow up on, um, you know, with uh, with the Minister of Justice, you know, to make sure that this is something uh, else to look on going forward. Um, so more work for us to do, no question. Now. You're a residential school survivor, and I've said very openly to people across Canada, there's two things that really, really hurt First Nations people in this land, and we're still feeling the intergenerational trauma and the effects of them. Uh, one is the residential schools, which we've said is a genocide of our people, and the other one is the imposition of the Indian Act in 1876. So between those two things, you know, it would really hurt First Nations people in this country, in this land. Now, as a residential school survivor, do you see Bill C-15 as a step towards reconciliation? In a way, it does. If, if you follow what the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommended, I think there are 16 references in their calls to action. Um, so I think uh, uh, 
call to action 43 and 44 is what my bill was meant to implement, um, C262. And I think in a similar way, that's what Bill C15 uh, does. Um, uh, and that is something that I promised myself when I came out residential school after 10 years. I said, there, there are two things I set out to do when I came out of residential school after 10 years. One, to go back to the bush and live off the land, which I did mm-hmm. for years. Because that's what I did for the first seven years of my life before I was sent to residential school. Um, so I went back to the land uh, for two years after coming out of residential school. I needed that for my healing, I guess. The other thing I promised myself is to reconcile with the people that put me away for 10 years. And Bill C-262 was a manifestation of that desire to reconcile with, with the people that put me away for 10 years. Of course, reconciliation is is a process, as, uh, as the Supreme Court said in the Haida Nation case. It's a process, not an end in itself. So that's why I say that 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 suggestion that we should have legislation that to make sure that the Minister of Justice, any time before a piece of legislation is introduced, makes sure that it uh, consistent with treaty rights and inherent Aboriginal rights of Indigenous peoples. Uh, in that same case, the uh, Supreme Court talked about uh, in the Haida Nation case talked about reconciliation. I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, um, and the objective says the Supreme Court is to reconcile the pre-existing sovereignty of indigenous peoples with the assumed sovereignty of the crown. It's the Haida Nation case, 2004. It's been mm-hmm. a long time. So I think, I think I prefer that kind of <laughs> reconciliation than, than any, any other. And that's, that's the starting point, I believe. And uh, that's where we need to move from. And lastly, uh, we always tend to forget uh, Article 1 of uh, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, whereby it is stated that all human rights, international human rights law, applies to Indigenous peoples, that we are equal to other peoples. I think when we start respecting our right to be different, and to be respected as such, it's a good starting point as well. Mm-hmm. We don't see that with all the racism going on in different institutions in Canadian society. We don't see that. We are not respected as being different. So I think there's a long, long way to go. But uh, many of us have worked on these issues for a long time. It's been a lifetime battle for me, uh, over 40 years, as a matter of fact. Uh, mm-hmm. I've started to, in the summer of 19. 81 with late Grand Chief Billy Diamond. I've worked with all of the Grand Chiefs that the Grand Council of Cree ever had uh, since 1974, including late Billy Diamond. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think I, I was destined to do this. I'm a bit tired now. I think you are too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think it's important to, to start on those, on, on those fundamental aspects in our relations in this country. Yeah. Well, you know, we've said uh, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People is indeed a roadmap to reconciliation in Canada, but it really is up to Canadians and all people to begin that journey and, and walk that, that road, walk that journey of reconciliation by learning about the UN Declaration and how it really is a, a, 
a roadmap for reconciliation. And we have, we all have to begin that walk, begin that journey together to really to bring about a better country for us all. So if all the work you've done, you know, in those last, uh, all these years, you know, and that's why the Akamemuk is a good word for us, you know, keep going, don't ever give up. What gives you hope, Romeo Saganash? What gives you hope? Well, one, one thing that gives me hope is that my, my three children haven't chosen the path that I've, I've chosen for my career. <laughs> that's a good sign. Uh, but uh, I think, I think um, our resilience uh, is what give, gives me hope. When I got elected in 2011, the first thing I did in the first day of the House was not to go to my seat, but to go to the clerk's table, which is right in front of the speakers. And I, went, I walked up to the clerk and I asked, may I ask my questions in this house in my language? May I do my speeches in this house in my language? The response was, Romeo, as a jurist, you surely know that the official languages in this place, in this country, are English and French. And in 2011, when I was told that, I did not accept that response. So I worked tirelessly over the eight and a half years that I was there um, to achieve that change, to get recognition of Aboriginal languages in, in, in the House of Commons. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it took a good seven years to get there uh, through man, many procedures. Uh, I even offered at one time that we get an international legal opinion on this because the right to understand and, and to be understood is a fundamental right in these type of uh, institutions. And that's what uh, I set out to do for the next seven years in, in, in the House of Commons. And today, um, today, any Indigenous person that wishes to speak their Indigenous language can do so without fighting for that right. Hmm. That's a huge change for an institution like the House of Commons and Parliament of, of Canada. It's a huge change. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the bad word I used in the House of Commons during my time, uh, my time there. But uh, the, I think this, this is an important change. And it shows me that by using the legal instruments that we have at our disposal, and coming back to that, you know, the Constitution, it's not only Section 35 that gives me that right. It's Section 22 uh, of the Constitution that talks about other languages besides English and French. It's Section 25. Uh, it's the multiple case law uh, coming up from the the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. It's international mm. human rights law. It's the it's the UN declaration. So I used all of those arguments before the House Committee on Procedures, uh, House Affairs and Procedures, PROC. I used all of those arguments to say, this is why I need to be uh, recognized as right uh, to speak my language in this place. And in the report of PROC to the House of Commons, finally, they, they used all of those legal arguments that I that I displayed at, to them uh, to justify uh, the right for Indigenous people to speak their language in the house mm. with a certain process, understandably, because you know you need to you need to advise the house that in forty eight hours you'll be speaking or doing the speech twenty minute speech in Cree 
or Mohawk. So I think it's an important step in the right direction. We have that now. We don't yeah. need to fight that anymore. So, yeah. uh, so that, that proves to me that we can change these systems to re- so that we can have a rightful place within them if we choose to. That's what Article 5 is all about. We can put mm. faith in the legal, uh, social, political, economic structures, institutions of a country without abandoning our status as Indigenous people and nations. That's a powerful statement for, for hope and for change, especially when it comes to our identity in that House of Commons. And you've led that way by getting Cree being able to be spoken there. You know, and now we have uh, another member part, Jaime Batiste, that will be speaking Mi'kmaq. You know, so you can give notices. We have over 60 different nations in Canada. So we always say in the most respectful way that we're speaking English, you know, and then French as well. Tu parles français, moi aussi, je parle français un petit peu. So French, beautiful languages. Mm-hmm. But we speak Cree, we speak Mohawk, we speak Dene, we speak Blackfoot, we speak Gwich'in and Halkamilam, New Chonath, like all these different nations that are still here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's powerful to see institutions change, to respect that and reflect that. Yeah. And uh, that is uh, a powerful message of hope and change in this this beautiful country that we're sharing with all of our relatives. So, uh, Romeo Saganash, I want to thank you so much for your leadership. And I've always said one does not have to be elected to be a leader. <laughs> and uh, you're leading uh, the way on so many fronts for all of our people. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemek podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.